Uh, we're going to spend the entirety of our time this morning studying from the book of the Revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. So let's, uh, let's look there with each other. And um, I think what I'd like to do is if you have questions or comments, I'd like you to write them down and then we can have some discussion at the end. I find that often works better, uh, especially for me, on, for, for several reasons. So let's, let's do it that way. Um, the one verse I will comment on in the Torah is the very first verse that John read. He, he read, the, uh, the, the, I think it says in Hebrew, like the Nistarim, the things that are secret or hidden, they belong to Yahweh our God. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our, our children so that we can do all the words of this Torah forever. And I think that's very applicable, that, that approach, when we, when we look at the book of Revelation. There are things in the book of Revelation that aren't very clear. Who is the false prophet going to be? What is the beast system going to look like? Etc. And of course, there's a lot of speculation about that. Sometimes I would almost regard some of those things as being the, the hidden things, the things that aren't clear yet. And, you know, that stuff ultimately belongs to God. He's going to take care of it, and He's going to oversee how all that unrolls. What belongs to us? What is our primary focus to be? Doing His Word. Applying His mitzvot, His commandments to our life. That's the idea there. And teaching them to our children. Um, making, it, making it relevant to our families. That's the, that's the classic Jewish approach to Scripture and to prophecy. And as you can see from Deuteronomy 29.29, 29, it's, uh, it's very relevant. Okay, we're going to be looking... I'm going to be giving you snapshots of the main categories of figures in these chapters. These are like the action chapters of the book of Revelation. This is where everything hits the fan. It all gets geared up and uh, there's, there's some adventure, there's danger, there's a uh, high crisis. So th these are roughly the slots that these figures fall into. Uh, time periods, geographical places, individual people, groups of people, governments, and spiritual entities. So I'm going to give you some snapshots of, of these guys and we're going to profile each one of them. Uh, firstly, we have a geographical place, Jerusalem. We, uh, I'm not even going to give you all the verse numbers for all of this because we just read all the chapters, right? I'm just going to point out some key thoughts that maybe would often escape or notice. Firstly, it says that Jerusalem is the holy city. You'll notice it doesn't say in the book of Revelation that Jerusalem was the holy city until Messiah came. It doesn't say that Jerusalem was the holy city until the Romans came and destroyed the temple and decimated the city. The book of Revelation was written after 70 AD. So it was written after Jerusalem was destroyed. That's, that's very, very relevant. What that says is Jerusalem continues to be the holy city. It continues to be important in God's plan. Why would Jerusalem be considered holy? Because the Bible says in the Old Testament that it's God's holy city. He said his name there. Uh, I, I listen to a lot of preachers from different streams and I, I heard a preacher this week and I really love the way he reach, he's reaching his city for God and Messiah and he's contextualizing the gospel. But this week he was talking about Yeshua's prophecy in, in Luke about Jerusalem being trodden underfoot and I was like, oh, you're not factoring in all the verses. He was talking about how Jerusalem was holy and then God sent the Romans to destroy it and that was the end. And Judaism was over. It's just all over. And um, the only thing that's holy now is Yeshua. Jerusalem isn't holy. Israel isn't holy. And I was like, 
oh, ow. Like you're just, you're ignoring so many verses in the Bible when you say that. And um, anyway, this is just a very simple example of that. Jerusalem continues to be a holy city. It goes on to say that Jerusalem will be under the control of the Gentiles, i.e. the nations, perhaps that would be the United Nations, for a period of roughly 42 months. I'm going to give you the Hebrew term for the Temple Mount. The Hebrew term is the Har. Everybody say Har. It means mountain. Hardy Har. Har, Har, Har. Har, mountain. H-A-R. Um, Habait. Everybody say Ha. Bait. Okay, uh, a house or temple is a bait. Habait is the house or temple. So if you want to say, let's go to the temple, you'd say, let's go to Habait. It's like the big house, basically. And then Har is mountain. So Har Habait is how in Hebrew you say the temple mount. Um, this passage would suggest that the Har Habait, the temple mount, will be under the control of the U nations of the world, perhaps the UN, and probably under the control of a false religion. Uh, who's to say what that could look like? It seems like everybody wants to get a piece of Jerusalem and a piece of the Temple Mount. doesn't matter if you're dealing with the Mormons or Islam or anybody. Baha'i, everybody wants to get a chunk of Jerusalem. Um, anyway, it looks like it'll probably be under the control of a false religion or a false conglomerate of religions. It's going to happen. Um, it goes on to say regarding Jerusalem that in the end of days, in the years before Yeshua's return, spiritually it will be Sodom. And spiritually it will be Egypt. It's the place where the Master was crucified. It's the place where His two witnesses will be uh, executed. You'll notice there, it doesn't say that Jerusalem is not holy because the spiritual environment there is like Sodom and Egypt. It's still the holy city. I'm not sure if some of you have heard this suggestion, but there's a suggestion out there that Israel or Jerusalem is only holy when the people there are holy. That's a false idea. Um, it doesn't matter who's there. God says, this is my land, this is my country, this is my holy city. And uh, if you want to mess the place up and, and befoul it with your sin, I will probably have to move you out at some point. But it continues to be holy. So that's, that's something to take note of. Um, why Sodom? Why would there be a parallel drawn between Sodom and Jerusalem? Sodom was famous for abusing their freedom. They had their free, their free will and they, they used it to sin to the max. Um, you could say that the, the problem with Sodom was lawlessness. They were just running wild. They were totally out of control. I'm not going to go into the details. You know the details. Yeah. Anarchy. Um, Egypt. Here's the, here's the flip side. Egypt. What does Egypt symbolize? Egypt symbolizes the opposite of freedom. Egypt symbolizes control. Pharaoh controlled the people of Israel. Pharaoh would not let them go where they wanted, wanted and do what they wanted to do. Um, I think it could also symbolize religious control. Legalism. All right? So on, one, on the one side you have Sodom, which is lawlessness and abusing your freedom. On the other side you have Egypt, which is legalism and controlling other people and being under control for yourself. Um, I would say the, this is the, these are the two sides that everybody on the planet falls into apart from the Holy Spirit. Either you become like, you just live it up and you're wild and reckless and lawless and you abuse your freedom. Or else you are religious in a dead way and controlling. 
Uh, Martin Luther said the default mode of unregenerate humanity is religion. We are naturally religious people, but it doesn't mean our spirits are alive, and it doesn't mean it has anything to do with the, the love thing for the Creator that is His heart's desire. So, that's, that's a snapshot of Jerusalem in the end of days for you. Uh, the next, next um, snapshot will be a period of time. Uh, we're looking at roughly three and a half years. And as, as we go into this, I just want to say that like, this isn't the core of what we're about as a community. Like, Bible prophecy is fascinating and it's there for a reason. And we have so many things to learn from it. But this is not like the foundation of what we're about, okay? We're about discipleship to Yeshua. We're about applying His Word to our lives. We're about growing as families and our love for Him and each other. Prayer and worship. Reaching our city for the Gospel. That's the big stuff, right? What's going to happen in the future and how it's going to look? It's important because it's in the Bible. But there's some room here for interpretation, okay? There's wiggle room. So I'm just going to be sharing with you my understanding, trying to read it as literal as possible, tr- despite all of the symbolism, uh, etc. So this is just how I see it. And um, we're, we're, we're going to have a great discussion at some time. I know John and I have been talking about how we want to talk about the whole tribulation scenario and the rapture and what that might look like and just crack open the scriptures together. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So I just wanted to put in that plug here, all right? Um, Roughly three and a half year period of time. Um, it actually, it's, it's, it's listed five times in here. It mentions it as a time period of 42 months, 1260 days, and this mystical expression, a time, times, and half a time. And the Hebrew times is in the dual form, that means two. So a time, two times, and half a time. How many times is that? Three and a half times. And uh, we see here that that's interpreted as 42 months, 1260 days. So in that context, that means about three and a half years. Um, we'll, we'll, I'll point those out as we, as we break down these chapters. Actually, this time frame is referencing two prophecies in the book of Daniel where this expression, a time, times, and half a time is first used. I'll read those for you as we go. So that's a snapshot of the the time period here. Here's a snapshot of two individual people. They're called the two witnesses. In the Greek, they're called his two martyrs. What does it mean to be a martyr in English? It means to die for a cause. Uh, You have martyrs for Islamic Jihad. You have martyrs for social causes. You have martyrs who um, just feel sorry for themselves and they have like a martyr complex. But in the Greek, it means to be a witness. What's a witness? A witness is someone who stands in a legal scenario and they they say, this is what I have seen, this is what I have heard, this is reality in that situation. And he says he has two people like that. And it, it, it went on in the early believing tradition to also mean dying for the testimony of Yeshua, simply because very often when you would actually get gutsy and you would preach the gospel, you would die a premature and violent death for it. You would become a martyr in the sense of the word that we have it in English. These guys prophesy for 1260 days, it says. So they are prophets. They are, in Hebrew we would say, Navi'im. Everybody say Navi'im. A Navi is a spokesman. Navi'im are spokesmen. So these, these guys are spokesmen in the end of days for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In verse 3 it says that, chapter 12 it says they are clothed in sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Uh, it's, it's, um, 
It's clothing made from really rough fabric. How many of you have dug potatoes before? Maybe if you have a garden or grew up in a farm context. I know we had a huge potato garden at the farm and we would dig it up and what would we put those potatoes in? In guinea sacks. Basically, guinea sacks are like sackcloth. Can you imagine making underwear of guinea sacks? It would be hard to sleep at night, wouldn't it be? It's like the opposite of silk or satin. Very uncomfortable. All right, that's the idea. In Israel, in the culture of that time, if you were in mourning, you would wear, you would wear guinea sacks, basically. You know, cut a couple slits in the thing, put it on. Very uncomfortable because your soul is uncomfortable. You're mourning. That's the idea. So what, what, basically what it's saying is these two prophets are not going to be in, an, in a very comfortable state for those years. They are actually going to be deeply mourning. Um, in verse 4, they are actually pictured by two olive trees and by two menorahs or uh, seven-branched lampstands. That's the prophecy from Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, he has this mystical vision in which he sees two olive trees that are receiving oil. and um, or Sorry, there are two like menorahs that are receiving oil. And um, they're called... This is a very cool phrase. I think it's used only once in Zechariah 4. The sons... Of fresh oil. The Hebrew word for fresh oil is, is Yitzhar. Everybody say Yitzhar. Yitzhar. One, one of Moses' uncles was named Izhar. Um, I think the other guys were Hebron and Uziel and then his dad Amram. There were these four brothers. One of them was named Izhar. And it's this word for, for fresh oil. So these guys are all about fresh oil. It has to do with the anointing pictured by olive oil that was dumped on the head of the king of Israel and dumped on the head of the high priest of Israel. So basically, these two guys are going to be like a king type and a pre high priest type, is how I would understand it. They'll probably function in those roles on a spiritual level. Um, actually, in Hebrew, the king, the anointed of Yahweh, was simply called the Mashiach. You remember David quite often called Saul the anointed of the Lord? In Hebrew, he was calling him Yahweh's Messiah the anointed one. Uh, similarly, Aaron was called the Kohen, the priest, Hamashiach, the anointed priest. So it's like the priest and the king of Israel were pictures of Messiah. And that's what these guys are, are all about also. In verse 6 we read that they have power to cause nationwide droughts, which is a reference to Elijah causing a nationwide drought that lasted for three and a half years. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, three and a half years. Interesting. It's in 1 Kings 17. They also have power to turn water to blood, which is a reference to Moses in Exodus chapter 4. So it's basically saying these guys are going to be like Moses and Elijah. They're going to be operating on that same level of power. They're going to be speaking with that same authority. Wow, that's exciting. I mean, it's going to be tough. And they are going to be in a period of mourning, but it's also going to be exciting because the God who created the universe will be speaking very audibly to planet Earth and giving everybody on the planet a really big chance to repent and to come to Him. And that's a thing of great joy. Um, what did Moses and Elijah do specifically? Here's, here's how I would see it. Moses confronted a foreign power that had infringed on Israeli national sovereignty. That was what Moses did. It was like, it was a... And then Elijah, he confronted the leadership and the people of Israel when they had apostatized from the God of Israel. So Moses was more outside of national Israel dealing with external affairs. Elijah was more inside national Israel dealing with internal affairs. Man, put these two guys together and you're going to be having a very 
powerful duo. Um, when these guys step up to the plate, people are going to view them as Old Testament prophets. People will probably say, wow, you know, when I read Revelation and I see these guys, they're, they're like Old Testament prophets. They're actually New Testament prophets. Because we have this big dichotomy between Old Testament and New Testament. So we're like, these guys do not fit my grid for the New Testament. Well, that's because you need to expand your New Testament grid. The Old Testament and the New Testament are part of one book. They're part of one seamless revelation from God. So, if these guys don't fit your grid for a New Testament prophet, you need to overhaul your grid. Because these guys are New Testament prophets. They're biblical prophets. Um, these guys are going to be viewed as very intolerant. They are going to be viewed as very judgmental by most of the world, I'm sure. And uh, that's actually going to be true. They will be intolerant and judgmental because they will be representing a God who has a very low tolerance level for defiance against Him. Um, and a God who is also the ultimate judge in the highest court of the universe. Um, in verse 10, we even read, these two guys tormented the world's citizenry. That's strong language, hey? It's like, man, that's not very nice. That does not fit my understanding of like kind of the warm fuzzies that the New Testament is supposed to be all about. These two prophets who like are causing nationwide crises and tormenting nations who have thumbed their noses at God, if you could, if you could put it that way. Um, in verse 5, we read that fire kills anybody who wants to harm them. Uh, that's a reference to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. The king sends a group of 50 policemen to arrest Elijah. He's sitting up on a hill and they're like, Elijah, you come down here right now. And he's like, if I'm a true prophet, then fire's going to fall right on you right now and burn you up. And like fire just boom, and they were all incinerated. I mean, it's kind of a sad story, but at the same time, like you don't mess with God's prophets. And so it's saying it's going to be the same scenario over again. Um, how many of you see, have seen movies where there are assassins or assassination attempts? I'm, I'm sure most of us have. Um, that's probably going to be a very active ingredient in this scenario. Um, there are going to be many, many people who want these men dead. There will be assassination attempts on their life. There will be failed assassination attempts um, in which the would-be assassins and the men who hired them will be killed uh, via supernatural means. Ouch. It's like probably one or two people will try that and then they'll be like, this isn't working. There's like, there's a very great power behind these men. There's somebody invisible that's protecting them, and we really need to stop messing with these guys and the power behind them. Um, it does go on to say, though, that the beast system, whatever that's going to be, it will engage in combat against them, it will wage a concerted war, and it will overwhelm them and kill them. It goes on to say they won't be given a funeral, they won't be given proper burial even, they're just going to be left... You know, if, if you read that really literally, they're just going to be left lying there, their dead bodies in Jerusalem, somewhere in Jerusalem. Whatever that'll look like, I'm not sure. And um, the, the, the rest of the world's going to be so busy partying that they're finally dead that maybe they won't even bother to bury them. So these guys aren't going to get very high popularity ratings. Uh, they will not be viewed as celebrities. I believe they will be very popular with Israel. I believe they will be very popular with the remnant of God's people who are staying true to them. They will be kingdom celebrities. But when it comes to the world, the world's going to more like celebrate when they're dead. 
I don't know if that makes you a celebrity when people celebrate when you die, but that's going to be the deal. It goes on to say in verse 11 that after roughly 84 hours, if you read that literally, they're going to come back to life and they're going to stand up. Um, it, it says that everybody, the nations and peoples of the world are going to be watching this. How can that happen? Media? This world is wired to be able to see things in an instant. When those planes were flying into the Twin Towers, the world was watching. If there are two men that are world famous for like making a lot of people really unhappy because they refuse to repent, and they're finally like overwhelmed and killed, the world, and the world's partying about it, that's because like this is huge. This is like front-page stuff on the media. There are going to be like millions of tweets about this. What? Live streaming, sure. And you know, everyone's going to be partying it up, if you read this literally. And after like about 84 hours, these guys are going to come back to life. And the world is going to freak out. Really. I mean, wouldn't you freak out if you saw two righteous dudes and you were trying to kill them and you hated their guts, and then finally you killed them, and like 84 hours later they came back to life? Just like their savior, whom they represented Yeshua, came back to life? Like, man my heart would stop cold. I think the hair on the back of my neck would go up. It goes on to say that the world, the world will watch that with great fear. They'll be terrified. And they're going to watch these guys literally ascend into the skies in the historical tradition of the two Jewish prophets, Elijah and Yeshua. If you read this literally. I, I, I hope this is literal. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be the most powerful like, thing that you could ever say to, uh, to the world? Here's, here's, um, here's, here's one idea, um, you know, when it comes to who these guys are going to be, I don't know, I hope to be around to see them do their thing, because it's going to be incredible, it'll be like the days of Moses and Elijah, only better, wow. Um, there's one idea out there that these aren't going to be two literal men, that it's actually a like Judah, i.e. the Jewish people in Ephraim, i.e. believers from the nations, um, that's kind of an idea going around in the... The, the two-house world or whatever you want to call it. I disagree with that idea. When you read about these men and how they die and how they're raised from the dead and how they ascend into heaven with the nations watching, that can't be Ephraim and Judah. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fit all the verses. So um, I would suggest those are probably going to be two individual men. So that's a snapshot of the two witnesses. Here's a snapshot of a people group in Revelation 12, Israel. Um, it's a, pictured as a woman with 12 stars, a crown of 12 stars on her head. That means Israel and all the people of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, um, including Judah, which is like kind of a figurehead of the Jewish people, and Joseph, who prophetically represents believers from the nations. If you are a believer from the nations, you're not Jewish. Joseph is like your patron saint. Because he was part of Israel, just like every Gentile believer is part of Israel through faith. But he looked like an Egyptian. And he spoke Egyptian. And when Judah and his bros came down from Israel and they saw Joseph, they didn't even recognize the guy. They're like, yeah, that guy's not Jewish. He can't be Jewish. He can't be part of the family. But Joseph was. And that's you. Believers from the nations, are, prophetically speaking, are like, like Joseph. Um, so anyway, I, I, I would suggest to you that when it has a picture of this woman, it's not just the Jewish people. There will also be believers from the nations involved who have joined themselves to Israel through faith. There will be a generation of Ruths who have said, I'm going to go where you go. Your people are going to be my people and your God's going to be my God. And I'm going to die where you die. I don't know if any of you heard Glenn Beck's a speech that he gave in Israel this last week. Man, he is a spiritual Ruth. 
That was exactly the kind of language that he was using. Uh, some people would say that Revelation 12 is about the birth of Messiah. I suggest to you that there are some prophetic harmonics going on there. There are some similarities, but it's a different scenario. Because when this book was written, Yeshua's birth had already happened. This is talking about future events. Um, it talks about this woman, the people of Israel, giving birth to a person or a movement that will wield great kingdom authority, as pictured by ruling with a rod of iron. In 12 verse 6, this woman encounters fierce spiritual opposition from the enemy, and it says that she escapes to the wilderness or the desert and is supernaturally fed and taken care of for 1260 days. Uh, basically, that same idea is repeated in Revelation 12:14, but it gives a key detail. It says that she's given the wings of the great eagle. Sounds like something Native Americans would say, hey, the First Nations of Canada. Um, the wings of the great eagle. This is a phrase that's only used three times in the Bible. One is a very popular verse, those who wait on Yahweh will renew their strength and they'll mount up with wings like eagles. The other two places where this is used is here, where it talks about the woman escaping to the wilderness, and Exodus 19, where God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and under, under the... Um, um, through the agency of Moses. And he says in Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So basically what it's saying here in Revelation is this is going to be a second exodus. If you could use a code word, you know how military operations have code words? Operation so-and-so? The exodus from Egypt under the hand of Moses was Operation Eagle's Wings. All right? That was the name of it. That's kind of the idea there. So when you read in Revelation 12 that she escapes via eagle's wings, it's saying it's going to be an Exodus-type scenario all over again. The book of Jeremiah talks about this. The book of Ezekiel talks about this. A time when there's an Exodus that dwarfs the Exodus from Egypt. A time when people are not even going to be talking about the Exodus from Egypt because of what God is doing right now in bringing His people out of the nations and um, in that kind of concept. Okay, here is a very, very cool concept. There is a part of the people of Israel, they're identified by two things. Revelation 12, 17 mentions a bunch of people that are called the rest of her children, that is, you know, her children, children of Israel, who, who one, keep the commandments of God, and two, hold to the testimony of Yeshua. These, this same bunch of people is mentioned again in Revelation 14.12 where it mentions the saints, the holy people who, one, keep the commandments of God and two, their faith in Yeshua. Okay, how many of you today have heard people say, you know, if you believe in Yeshua, if you're a Christian, then like keeping God's commandments, that's Old Testament. That's done away with. That is, that is law and it's not part of the gospel. I suggest to you, based on these descriptions in Revelation, that they actually aren't antithetical to each other. Legalism is bad. God's law is good. Keeping God's commandments to be right with God, in the sense of works, that's bad. But keeping God's commandments because His Spirit in you is overwhelming you with a love for Him and a desire to do His Word, that's good. All right? So just take note of that. There are going to be a bunch of people in the years before Yeshua's return that combine the Torah, i.e. keeping God's commandments, and the Gospel, i.e. faith in Yeshua. They go hand in hand. 
I, I'm very passionate about this. If you come from an evangelical background, you are strong in the gospel, but you may be weak in understanding the role of God's law, His Torah, and how it applies today. So that's part of, that's part of this movement that we are a part of. The Torah and the gospel are one. They go hand in hand because the Bible is a unit. So these bunch of people, you can identify them by three things. Number one, they identify with Israel. Number two, they're messianic. Messianic means you believe in Messiah, right? Basically, every Christian is messianic if you want to look at it in that regard. And number three, they're Torah observant. They keep God's commandments. That's something that is important to them. So that's a snapshot of Israel in Revelation 12. Here's a snapshot of a spiritual entity, Michael and the angels. These guys are invisible. We don't see them every day, or we'd all probably be screaming at the top of our lungs because they're massive and they're dangerous. And it says in verse 7 that they engage in combat with the evil one and his army, they actually oust them from their power center in the heavens and they throw them down to the earth. So just take note of that. In the end of days, there's a massive battle going on. There is fierce combat in the spiritual realm over planet earth. Um, I don't know if any of you have read anything by John Eldridge. He wrote the book Wild at Heart and he has other several good books. One of them is called Waking the Dead. And in it, he, he really like talks to people whose hearts have shut down, maybe from prayers that haven't been answered or from things that have gone wrong in their lives and they've just lost heart, they've lost faith. And one of the things he says is, too often we live like civilians when we are not civilians. We are on a battlefront. We are in the middle of a crossfire. And there are many things in our lives that do not make sense unless we look at them in the context of the fact that there's a massive battle going on right now and we are in the heat of battle. Um, it's often a very helpful way to understand things in our lives that have gone, gone wrong in the past. Sometimes it's just because I was stupid, so things went wrong in my life or because of my own sin. There are other times though when people are casualties of that battle. There are other times when prayers are not answered because there is an invisible battle happening. Remember Daniel? He was like one of the most righteous dudes of his era. Like if anybody could pray and see results, it would be him. And when he like really buckled down and started praying intensely and he wasn't even eating for like three weeks. He didn't get an answer. And then finally an angel comes to him in person and says, Daniel, like as soon as he started praying, I was sent from the throne. But it's taken me three weeks to get here to answer your prayer because I had a battle to, to fight with the prince of Persia, I think it was. Like, wow. It, it, it just goes to say though that there's a lot more going on than what we're aware of. And that's something to, to take note of. You are a soldier, you are in the heat of battle, and uh, thankfully you're on the right side. You are allied with the ultimate king, and he's going to win. Let's, uh, let's let, have a snapshot here of the enemy of Satan. In 12.3 he's called the Red Dragon. Red in Hebrew means several things. If you're a human being that is not living in the Spirit of God, Red is your picture. You're in the flesh. You're like a chunk of meat running around, totally selfish. Red is also a picture of religion that is not in the power of God. And I don't care if it's Islam or Christianity or any other religion. Red is also a picture of Edom, who is Esau. Edom was like one of the main enemies of Israel. Edom was one of the chief aggressors against Israel in ancient times. And the book of, Edom, book of Obadiah talks about a end of days battle between Edom and Israel. And we would be like, what? Edom's gone. There is no country named Edom. I can look it up on Wikipedia. No Edom. Well, then you need to stop and you need to ask yourself, then who is Edom symbolically? 
a nation that is in the boundaries of Israel that is a strong aggressor against Israel i.e. maybe Hamas would qualify maybe other terrorist organizations that are like right now raining rockets down on southern Israel and killing civilians that's Edom spiritually speaking and read the book of Obadiah it's one chapter and it talks about how like Israel's gonna whop Edom in the end of days it's gonna be huge okay so that's kind of those are some of the connotations when you read the red dragon the Hebrew word for dragon is Tanin can you say Tanin it actually turns up all over the Hebrew Bible, but it's translated as different words. It's translated as sea monster, it's translated as serpent, and the root of it, tan, is also translated as jackal. So if you have Esword, look up this word, and it's like all over the Old Testament. Only it's not usually translated as dragon. So all of those verses are about the enemy on some level. I'll give you two hallmarks of this fierce enemy, the sworn enemy of God and of his people, his covenant people. Um, number one, we read in 12.9, he is a deceiver. He's the ultimate liar. He actually deceives the whole world. So the entire world system is deceived to some degree by the enemy. What is his method of control? His method of control is through lies. Because he's the deceiver. You know what that means? It means the degree to which you believe lies maybe even not consciously, that's the degree to which you are under the control of the forces of evil. The degree to which a society's thinking isn't based on truth is the degree to which that society is under demonic influence. And it, it doesn't matter if you are a Christian or a non-Christian or an atheist. The degree to which we accept lies is the degree to which the enemy, you become the enemy's like little puppet. What's the name for those puppets? Marionette. Satan has a whack of marionettes in this world. And the greatest, the greatest lie is television. The greatest lie is television. Television is an excellent communicator of false thinking. And the amazing thing is it's not in your face. It's not like, you must believe this. It's more like it's just all of this undercurrent stuff, all of these assumptions, brain programming long term. Man, that's so true. Basically, like, a person has fallen for the devil to the degree to which they've fallen for false teaching and bad theology. Uh, like, lies are Satan's most powerful weapon. Conversely, truth is your most powerful weapon. Um, that's why I have a really high view of preaching and expository Bible teaching. You've noticed, like, I generally preach for a solid hour on Shabbat. I try and cover a lot of stuff. And that's why. Because we are an army, and we are fighting a battle, and truth is our main weapon. And when we get into the truth, we're reinforcing ourselves. We are building up battlements, and um, we, are, we, are, we are protecting ourselves from demonic attack. Um, the other hallmark of the enemy is accusations. He is the ultimate accuser. What's the opposite of accusations? Defending someone or interceding on their behalf. So it's basically, this is the deal. There are two guys in heaven before the throne. One of them is always accusing you. The other is always defending you and praying for you in intercession. Yeshua lives to make intercession for you. You could say, like, Satan's full-time job is to point out the faults, the weaknesses, the mistakes, the sins of the people of God. And Yeshua's full-time job is to intercede for you. You could look at it like this. Satan is your biggest critic. Yeshua 
is your biggest fan. Some of us have been listening to our biggest critic for too long, and you just need to tell him to shut up and ignore him after that. And start listening to your biggest fan, the guy who believes in you, the guy who is praying for you right now. Uh, verse 11 goes on to say that in the face of this fierce combat, this spiritual opposition, we will win. You are going to win. <laughs> and you have three weapons that are going to enable you to win. As, as uh, us as a community. Uh, number one, Yeshua's blood. That's kind of abstract. Yeshua's blood communicates something. It communicates Yeshua is our redeemer. Yeshua is our justifier. He is our intercessor. He is the forgiver of our sins. Let me tell you, if you are under spiritual attack, Satan will often hit you in one of those areas. You are not forgiven. You are not justified. Yeshua does not intercede for you. He is, you are not redeemed. Those kinds of ideas. And very often when we kind of get, that mean, get a mean streak in us and we get ugly and we start talking bad about other believers, we sound more like Satan than Yeshua. And that's usually what we're saying is not based on an understanding of who Yeshua is as redeemer, forgiver of sins, justifier, etc. Uh, number two, our weapon is the word of our testimony. What is that? It's the truth of the message of Messiah. It's the gospel. And number three, our weapon is our fierce commitment to preaching the gospel. Even if it means dying a premature and violent death. That was one of the things that made the early Yeshua movement invincible. The early Yeshua movement was committed to preaching the gospel publicly, everywhere they went, even if it meant dying a premature and bloody death. And what it's saying is that fierce commitment will put you on the winning side. And with a commitment like that, you cannot lose against the enemy. And you know what? Some of us might die in that process. And of course, there is that element of wisdom for where we need to be sensitive to his voice and to his spirit's leading. But we as his people will win. Uh, in verse 12 and on, this is actually really encouraging. Often we think, like, we think of this time period as like, this is going to be so bad. This is going to be so bad. I mean, Satan's just going to be like running wild and people are going to die and it's going to be awful, you know? But here's, here's something encouraging from the bright side. Revelation 12, 12 actually says that the great tribulation is precipitated by Satan being dislodged from his bunker in the cosmic heights. Basically, like, Satan's on the run and he's losing and this is his last ditch stand. This is his last clutch at planet Earth. And then he's out. That's encouraging. He's not, he's not winning. In the Great Tribulation, he is struggling. He's on his way out. And that's, uh, that's what it says in Revelation 12.12. So that's a snapshot of our spiritual enemy. A snapshot of how he expresses himself in the end of days uh, is uh, in Revelation chapter 13, the beast, which I would understand to be a government, probably some type of one world order, uh, United Nations government or something like that. Again, this is theoretical, right? But everything in the world is heading in that direction if you read up about it. There's a, there's a real agenda to see a one world government formed and to see a world leader appointed. Um, it says this government in verse 4 will be military, militarily unchallengeable. Verse 8, it says, Everybody on earth who isn't spiritually alive in Yeshua will serve this government. Verse 5, it says, Authority to act will be given to this government for 42 months. Who gives it that authority? Yeshua. He is the only one who has that type of authority. Yeshua gives this government authority to run wild for 42 months. You know what that means? It means even when it's doing its thing, it's still on a leash. 
The only reason it's doing that is because the ultimate king gave it that authority and he has a purpose for it. In 13.7 we read that authority over every people group, every nation state is given to it. In verse 7 we even read that it wars against the saints, God's holy people, and it wins temporarily. I'll read you one of the two prophecies in Daniel where this is uh, first mentioned. Daniel chapter 12 verse 7 says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So did you hear that? There's the time frame, three and a half years roughly and they will shatter the power of the holy people. And then it's over. So, I I suggest to you, when this thing happens, trying to bind Satan, trying to spiritually resist the thing, it may not be the best strategic approach to it. And it will certainly not be smart to resist militarily and to take up arms against the system. Here's, here's the approach that I'm going to adopt if I'm around when this happens. Uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20 to Isaiah 27, 1. I'll read this to you. See if it doesn't fit. See if this isn't maybe about the end of days. Isaiah 26, verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, Yahweh is about to come out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. In that day, by Yom Hahu, that's like an end of days expression, Yahweh will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. That's a picture of Satan on the run, being punished with his fierce and great and mighty sword even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So, you know, the best modus operandi based on this passage and other passages would be this. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. It's kind of like batten down the hatches, hunker down, let the storm pass over. This isn't really about you. This is about the creator of the universe dealing with his sworn enemies. Um, there is a guy who's going to represent this beast system. I'll give you a snapshot of him. The false prophet is what he's called in later chapters. 13.13 says he has spiritual power. He's very charismatic. He even calls fire down out of heaven, just like Elijah. Like this guy does incredible miracles, and they're the real thing. And I guarantee you they're going to be all over YouTube. People are going to be tweeting this stuff by the millions, and it's, the media is going to have this covered. I don't know, did any of you see this prophet in that maybe on YouTube, this prophet in, prophet in Las Vegas, who claims to be a prophet of Yahweh, and he's, he calls, he goes out and he prays, and like UFOs appear in the sky? For real, check it out. There was like a media crew that went out this guy into a park in Las Vegas, and he started praying supposedly to Yahweh, and he's like, if, if I'm a real prophet, then I pray that you'd cause a UFO to appear something. And there's literally this thing that appears in the sky, like this kind of bright disk thing. And I don't think he was even expecting it because he kind of got all excited. And the media crew was like, wow, it's really there. This is for real. And it aired on like, it aired on, like US News. So it wasn't just like some freaky thing that they, that they pulled out. So I don't know, just YouTube like Las Vegas prophet of Yahweh or something. Watch that. Okay, people fall for stuff like that. 
And that was just something little. It's like, okay, you made a little bright thing appear in the sky. Whatever that means. But this is huge. It's going to be way bigger than that. This guy also isn't just going to be some lone dude in Las Vegas. This guy is going to be like accredited by millions of people, by government leaders, by religious leaders, and I'm sure, heaven forbid, by some Christian leaders. Because there is an apostate movement in Christianity. I'm not saying it all is, right? But there is, there is sectors of people that have just given up on believing the Bible. They're very ecumenical. It's just believe anything. Let's all just kind of put our hands around each other and love each other and not think. And um, some of those people might fall for some of this stuff. Um, in verse 16, it's, it goes on to say that he's going to lead the world's population to serve the beast system and to take some kind of sign on their right hand or on their forehead. He goes on to pass a law in verse 16 that shuts everyone out of that government's economic system that doesn't play by his rules. So if you say, you know what, that's wrong, I'm not going to take that, um, that means like you can't deal... It, in that currency, it means you're shut out of the global economy. Um, what that would look like on a practical level is like bank accounts shut down, um, property seized due to unpaid taxes, um, and inability to purchase basic necessities such as food and clothing. It would be a really good time for guys like Moses and Elijah to be around doing some of those miraculous things whereby the people of God in times past have been supernaturally taken care of. Maybe that's why these guys will be showing up. Um, here's, here's, here's something I really want us to look at. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's not very original. He just takes the truth of God and he twists it, or he makes kind of an imitation, a cheap imitation, and people fall for it. So here's the question. This sign on the hand or the forehead, what is it an imitation of? What is it a counterfeit of? Okay, yeah. That's right. When we read Exodus chapter 13, did you know that's the first mention of signs on the hand and forehead? God says in Exodus chapter 13 that when you celebrate Passover, when you get the leaven out of your house and you eat unleavened bread for a week to remember that He is the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, He is the God who gave the Torah to His people, it says in Exodus 13, that's a sign on your forehead. That's a sign on your hand. So whatever this mark of the beast is, people often are like, what's the mark of the beast going to be? We've got to try and figure it out. And there's all this speculation, right? I suggest to you, don't focus on the counterfeit. Focus on the true. And when the counterfeit comes, duh, you'll know what it is. You'll recognize it. So what's the true? The true is, according to Exodus chapter 13, start doing the biblical festivals. It says that's the true. When you do Passover, when you do the biblical festivals, when you, when you learn about God's calendar and start celebrating His appointed times, it will reinforce you against whatever the beast system is going to be about, and whatever the mark of the beast and all this stuff is going to be. That's basically, that's the idea there. And I encourage you, read Exodus 13. Read this chapter. Compare notes. See if that doesn't line up. Here's, um, here's something to build on that concept. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 is the other mention of this time, times, and half a time figure. It says he, the leader of this government that's pictured by the fourth beast in the book of Daniel, he's going to speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So did you get that? The false prophet, one of the things that you're going to recognize him by is he is going to mess with God's appointed times and with the calendar. He is going to try and change God's law. Let me ask you, has that happened in the past? Yeah. Really. I mean, 
I, I love church history because it's the history of God being gracious to His people and Yeshua saving us. But we also have some, we have some dark sides to church history. One of them would be, let's, let's say for instance in the 100s. In the 100s, all of Messiah's people celebrated Passover. The whole body of Christ, Christians, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, they did Passover. And um, in Rome, in the mid-100s, some guy said, you know what, let's, let's stop doing this Passover thing because that's Jewish and we're not Jewish. Let's start doing Easter. Did you ever notice the Bible doesn't talk about Easter, but everybody does it? And everybody's like, yeah, sola scriptura, we're going to do this thing by the book. And it's like, well, why are we doing Easter then? It feels inconsistent. And, and I, I suggest to you that, that migration from Passover to Easter may have been an example of that spirit at work in changing appointed times, changing the law, bringing stuff in that isn't in the Word. And I, like, I, I, I'm just saying, let's, let's be biblical. Let's try and do, let's try and believe every verse. Let's try and do it as he, as he leads us. So maybe that would be an example. Anyway, in the future, if this is read literally, this thing is going to like blow wide open in the end of days. And um, here's, here's our, our final snapshot from the book of Revelation. Um, we read about the two witnesses. They're going to be like the heroes on the side of Yeshua's cause in the end of days. There's also going to be a bunch of people. We're going to number 144,000. They're usually just called 144,000 in um, Revelation chapter 14. I'll just give you a couple, a couple like a summary, summarization of probably what the hallmarks of these guys are going to be. Uh, number one, they stand with Yeshua. So they're all about Yeshua. They're messianic. Number two, they're Zionists in the biblical sense of the word. Did you notice it says they stand with Yeshua where? On Mount Zion. Mount Zion isn't just some abstract place in the sky. Mount Zion isn't just a nice name for a Lutheran church. Mount Zion isn't in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mount Zion, biblically speaking, is a geographical location called the Temple Mount by the Jewish people. That's Mount Zion. And it's saying these guys stand with Yeshua for Mount Zion. They're biblical Zionists. Um, it goes on to say also, God's name is important to them. God's name is on their foreheads, whether that'll be literal or not, I don't know. I'll tell you something cool though. When I get out my phylacteries, my tefillin, and I put the one on my arm, and I put the other one on my head, and they are like marks that I belong to God, and that I am like fiercely committed to His covenant, that phylactery has, has, is a box and it has some of the Torah in it that includes the holy name of God, which is the name of God and also of the Lamb. So I mean, that's not to say that's the literal fulfillment, but every time someone puts on phylacteries, every time a Jewish believer does that, he has the name of God on his forehead. It's a picture of that. It's a very cool symbolism. I love what a radical act of devotion um, binding to fillin like that is. Anyway, God's name is important to them. I, I think this is, something that, this is something that's important to me. This is something that's important to us. We're very familiar with God's titles, and I love His titles. Some of His titles would be like El Yom, the Most High. Um, Elohim, God, which means He's like really powerful. Um, Adonai, which means Lord or Master. Okay, these are titles and they're good, but that's not God's name. The name of God in Hebrew is spelled yod heh vav -Hey. And it's pronounced Yahweh. Most scholars would agree on. So, as I would read this, the name of God, Yahweh, will be important to these men. If the name of God, Yahweh, is going to be important to these men, 
Maybe it should be important to us too. Maybe the name of God, Yahweh, isn't something that should be lacking in our vocabulary. So, you know, when we pray, we call Him God and we call Him Lord, and I'm not against those terms, but I feel like He's calling us to actually start calling on His name. That's the first, term, that's the first word for prayer in Hebrew, hey? Calling on the name of Yahweh is what prayer was called in the book of Genesis. So let me ask you, when you pray, do you call on the name of Yahweh? That's radical. It really is. But you know what? It says very clearly who you're praying to in an era where like, people pray to anybody when God can mean anything, where you have all kinds of lords out there. But when you start praying to Yahweh, it's very clear who you're praying to and who you believe in. It's radical. And you know, it's very intimate too. So, you know, I'm not saying you must do that, but I would encourage you to think about that and let the Holy Spirit rise up within you in prayer and call on the name of God and see if you don't just feel a more personal connection and a deeper intimacy with Him. Because I know that's been my experience and that's why I pray to Him. It's not because I have to or I should or I must. It's not what it's about. It's a love thing. It's about knowing Him more closely. Calling on His name. It goes on to say they have sexual integrity. They don't mess around. It also says um, they're 100% committed to Yeshua's cause and they go everywhere Yeshua takes them. It's like they're on mission and they're marching uh, to the sound of His drum. It also goes on to say there are no lies in their mouth. What, what does that mean? It means they have sound theology. They teach the truth. So they don't believe lies. They don't have a lot of bad theology in their system. It's kind of the idea there. So, that's a, that's a snapshot of the 144,000. I'll, um, I'll leave you with this, with this verse to, to think about. Um, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11, it says... Okay, this is hardcore. How many of you have heard like, yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, God was really mad, and He killed people, and... That was like, that was a dispensation. And then in the New Testament, that's the age of grace. And God doesn't get mad anymore and He doesn't kill people. Like there's no more judgment kind of stuff in the New Testament. It's kind of like a cleaned up version of God. Maybe you kind of give, you know, it's like in the Old Testament, God just wasn't very cool. And He just like did a lot of things that wouldn't make Him very popular. But then Jesus came along and kind of like the, uh, the image consultant. And He gave God a much nicer image. Just a lot nicer, you know. He's kind of like the... Uh, the ultimate Santa Claus. You know, he laughs a lot and he's really big and jolly and he gives you stuff that you want. I mean, really, like, when, when, we, when, we listen to how, when I listen to how some people preach the gospel, when I listen to how some people pray, I'm like, that's your version of God. I mean, I'm going to give you... And you know what? There, there's some truth to some things. Like, he's so loving. He's so compassionate. He prefers to have mercy. He is generous. He is... I think he is jolly. I think we have a father who's very jolly. He, he invented laughing. He probably outlaughs us all. Seriously. You know? So there is that side to him. But I want to give you the other side. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. This is the other half. This is the half that's less popular for people who are living in the flesh and who maybe their hearts aren't submitted to him or have accepted like worldly ideas. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. So do you get that? This is a picture. Here's a wine glass. 
And what is it, what is it full of? This, this wine glass is called the wine glass of God's anger. And we fill it, it's going to be filled up with what? His wrath. And for people who willingly choose a system that is led by Satan and is against him, he is going to force those people to drink that thing all the way down. And it's going to go right into them. And this is what it's going to look like. And that person will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And you know what it says? That's your perseverance. The knowledge that justice will come to this world and everybody who isn't a real friend of Yeshua is going to be like sent to hell forever. That is your perseverance. And you know what? That's going to be very comforting in times of trouble. If you were to stand and see family members slaughtered before your eyes and abused horrifically, if you were to see your property confiscated, if you were to see your baby die because you're starving because you're shut out of the system and you just can't even nurse your baby. I'm giving you examples. Because of evil men, because of wicked men who have allied themselves willingly with Satan, who is so ugly, who is so disgusting, that will be comforting to know. That will be your perseverance. Justice will come to the world. God's enemies will be dealt with. And everyone who has placed footsie with them and his friends are going to be who is left. And, and Yeshua is going to come back. And he's going to comfort his people. And we're going to be with him forever. That's the big picture. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who has taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.